Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my Millennial Falcon co-host, Teo Sabadian. They sure. When I YT, I YT 1300. <laughs> I, I will take your word for it. Uh, I, I'm old. I don't know what anything means anymore. I uh, can only read my shirt on the screen. Name. Otherwise I wouldn't remember it. I'm not that kind of geek. Okay. You're the best kind of geek. Uh, speaking of geeks, I just realized that our show notes are 16 pages long hmm. and you know, our, our patrons get to access that. And I know DMs guild products that are uh, shorter <laughs> and yet still like sell really well. So I, I don't know if that's good or if that's bad, but it is what we it is what we have. We are thorough. Yep. And I wanted to give a special shout out to Mr. Donovan and the Fredonia High School Game Club, which hosted me uh, last week. I ran the first mini mission of Treasure of the Broken Horde for a select group of players, and it was really fun to get a chance to sit down with them and, and play. So. That is uh, a thank favorite you of for mine. the slice of pizza and for hosting him. Yeah. Pizza blood drinker uh, was 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 back and better than ever. <laughs> it's a great. If anyone out there listening has not played Minions of the Broken Horde, like just that first one or Treasures of the Broken Horde, that first one is so good, so good. Just mm. great. Yeah. Good times, good times. But we have a lot to talk about this week. Not only do we have news coming from every which way, and we have the DMG Chapter 3 to talk about. We also have several missives from our listener corner. So I want to thank everybody uh, who has been chatting with us on Discord, on YouTube, on Twitter, Mastodon, at real-life conventions, wherever. Even our fevered imaginations, You, uh, your input. And questions and comments are appreciated. And with that, we will start with Hyperlexic, who contacts us via Twitter. I sort of, I'm, I'm distilling this down to just a few uh, lines, but I want to thank Hyperlexic for the longer version as well. Uh, Hyperlexic says, on the system complexity versus accessibility topic, I wonder how much of this is Wizards of the Coast, assuming that the execution will be heavily automated through D&D Beyond and the Wizards VTT. Robin Laws has been saying for a while that, quote, theoretically heavy automation could shift the complexity versus flow balance, and maybe Wizards believes the same thing. This is a really great point. Uh, mm -hmm. It's something I've heard other people discussing as well. And it's not a terribly revolutionary thought, right? It's been around in theoretical circles for years that automation can be used to hide complexity, <clears throat> not just in gaming, but in all fields, education, right? All, all, all different sorts of, uh, all different sorts of fields. So you just want to be sure if you follow this thread that the automation while hiding the complexity doesn't also hide the fun also doesn't hide the other positives of what you are trying to do. So if wizards of the coast is thinking this great. So as we cover the, the UAs and the play test packets and so on, and we talk about complexity, maybe they're assuming this. And if they are, I hope they consider what are two of the main positives that have been brought up about D&D recently. 
And it's something that we players who have been around for a while already know, which is having the game be at least a little complex helps the players and the game masters with their comprehension and math skills. Being able to read and parse rules is can be an important skill. And being able to do math is, is often fairly important. But also the socialization, also the back and forth and the the talking in terms of the narrative that the story creates, but also the discussion around the rules and around those sorts of things. And lots of people, psychiatrists, psychologists, parents talk about this importance of D&D and role-playing games in teaching socialization to, to folks. So if you do use uh, automation to hide complexity. I hope that automation also doesn't hide those things. That's really well said. I can't say much more to that, but it, it did, you know, when I read this question, it was actually something I hadn't thought about. Like I'd thought about the idea of like, oh, they're going to write fifth edition 2024 for the VTT, which I have not seen that really be the case. But the idea that, hey, we can make the game a bit more complex because everybody's using D&D Beyond, I hadn't actually contemplated that. But I think that there's some polling that suggests that something like, I don't know, 60%, this is a rough number, don't take me on this, uh, use D&D Beyond. And that's in like online polling, which is going to favor that kind of outcome. You know, If anything, push it upwards because you're not just going to random homes and gaming stores and things like that and asking people you're right. asking online. Um, and, you know, 40% not is a huge amount. And you, you can't, you should not ignore that percentage that is not using D&D Beyond. And I think it would be sort of folly to make the game, if I dare say so, for that 60% or whatever the percentage is, um, even if it's 70, right, or 80. Like, like that's, those are significant numbers and you want growth of game, not shrinkage of game. Um, so I, I would not want to see this happen for all the reasons I wouldn't, I don't think it's good for wizards. I don't think it's good for the reasons you stated. Um, I could see that thinking, but, but I hope that's not behind what is taking place. Yeah. I think what D and D beyond does more than automate the game, although it does do that in some ways is automate character creation yeah. is automate that by pulling choices from varied sources and distilling them down into a pick list. Yeah, uh, which is convenient, but it also, in a lot of ways, removes that sort of narrative storytelling world building element. So yeah. rather than sitting down with a book and saying, I can choose from these five subclasses and I'll read the the explanation of what they are, having them in a simple pick list, players might go skip that story driven mm -hmm section and just go right to the numbers which then can be useful but it also takes a little bit away from the game uh doing that yeah all right so thank you uh hyperlexic we also have via mastodon a question from george pr which goes along similar lines but asks a different question uh, George PR says, I love your discussion and analysis on weapon mastery. I love the idea of weapon mastery, and I always thought the fighter was rather banal, though I never really considered that a, that a feature as opposed to mm -hmm. a bug. 
I wonder too, though, how much of the increased complication is being obscured by tools like D&D Beyond. So that harkens mm-hmm. back to the question that we just asked. But the question that George PR asks is, as a designer, do you have a user persona for player types? And you and I have spoken, Teos, significantly on player types, but we tend to focus on player types at the table. Mm-hmm. This sort of question to me goes beyond that, and it's almost it's almost a marketing and sales player type. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what do you prefer to play rather than when you choose this? How do you play it? Uh, so I see this as a question of are there are there levels of choice for players based on not their player type but their purchasing type their their game i don't even uh, because this persona is something that's used in marketing yeah uh, where you group people by demographics or actions or any other information that you can gather and then you put them into groups and you direct information to those groups in different ways whether it's making the message longer or shorter whether it's making it more complicated or more uh, or easier to read whether it's more colorful or more text-based, you know, all of those things can go into that. And so I hope that Wizards of the Coast is thinking about that in terms of those things, because that's something a sales and marketing team should be doing. I hope that the designers, though, while keeping that in mind, don't change the game too much based on those things, except to understand that they are actually there are people out there in these persona types. Yeah, and I think that this all was a uh, it was user led, right? It was it was gamer led in that uh designers realized, hey, you know what? The person who wants to play a more simple game, they're they're always playing the fighter. And boy is the fighter the most popular mm-hmm. class there is. So we need to preserve a simple mm-hmm. choice, in fact, enshrine it because there's this huge number of people mm-hmm. who always pick the fighter and and want that as the simple case. And then you have people who love, you know, class X or Y varies across editions sometimes because they want a little more complexity in the game, a little more tactics. And there's medium complexity like the rogue tends to be. Um, There is sort of strategic complexity like the monk tends to be right. Moving around, positioning, doing things that maybe aren't like numerically huge, but are sort of about the movement and the jumping and things like that. Um, and and so understanding that and and you tend to see that like the warlock tends to be a sort of lots of choices and lots of you know how do you express yourself type type things and so it's smart to build that because you're building to what players want although it tends to be players who know the game but but you're doing that in a very um concerted design fashion so that and and you're making sure and, and they did this for fifth edition right the, the designers talked about this like in fifth edition they would look at what is our spread of classes and what is our spread of complexity so we can make sure that 2014 mm-hmm. has appeal to different groups. And I'm sure you've seen this at convention tables running a lot where you have pregens. And it doesn't matter what the game is. It doesn't have to be D&D. There are people who will immediately pick that fighter type. Oh, this guy just shoots and mm-hmm. does thing with a laser rifle. That's me. This thing is a swarm mm-hmm. of ball bearings. Like, I'm always picking that one, right? <laughs> That's the one I pick. And, right, and right. I'm you know has a it's a half octopus thing that has an ink thing i want to play with that show me you know give that to me 
And then there are folks who will, yep. you know, always or never touch the spellcaster, right? And so that's, uh, that's mm -hmm. something to design for, I think, that's very helpful. How you communicate that at the PR level, right. I'm not sure, but, um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in order to do that, what you have to do is start with the base classes as simple. Mm -hmm. Because somebody might want to play a spellcaster, but they want it to be simple. Some mm -hmm. sorcerer, some people right? might want to play, you know, the right. So you that's why you have a sorcerer. And and then if you need to add complexity from there, make it the subclass be the complex piece mm -hmm. instead of making the class be the complex piece. And mm -hmm. with 12 plus one classes, you you have that flexibility, but then you have to let everyone know that you want to play a spellcaster, but simple. Then here's your sorcerer. You have the same five spells that you cast over and over and over again, yeah. and and that's cool. And and, and you know the player you, types. But as you say, if you look at the sorcerer, seeing the table that has fewer spells on it, which is one of the first things you see as you start flipping through, that communicates right there, right? Ah, oh, fewer choices, mm -hmm. simpler. I like this, and so it's interesting to see 2024 tinkering with that and changing that in a way that could confuse the person who's trying to look for those cues to say, which of these is my simple, which of these is my complex. And then now you're not sure Oh, I get mad magic earlier. That sounds kind of complicated. Do I want that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so th uh, that's a great question and simple answer. I hope they keep it in mind without letting it totally derail any uh, game design questions that might come up. Yeah, and, and weapon we mastery. Have which question is, here. This one. I just want to say the weapon mastery, which is part of that question, right? Goes back to that whole concept of: right. Are you getting to where, you know, all of these classes suddenly have an extra piece of tactics, of complexity, of optimization, of decision review that makes it more complicated? Mm -hmm. So if you have that pregen on the table, and now you know it used to be, if you think of the the starter set, it came with two fighters, right? And one was like great weapon mm -hmm. and one's shield and, and, and long sword or something like that. And it, but it's still really simple. Yeah. Right. And now it's like, wait, what are my weapon masteries? And there's just that extra little bit that makes right. it harder to achieve that. For sure. Uh, next we have Chad Lynch via Patreon who says, I just listened to the chapter one episode and I'm particularly interested in the weapon specialization topic. It got me thinking about weapons, especially magic weapons. Perhaps templates would work well for magic weapons that could be applied to any weapon and not limit who can use it. So no more Vorpal swords. Now it's a Vorpal template. Uh, I also think levels of proficiency should be applied to weapons. Just because you are good with a long sword doesn't mean you are good with a dagger. Then weapon choices become more than what number is the biggest. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear any thoughts you all have. Tails, so I'm going to let you take the first half of that question there. Yeah, so weapon uh, kind of templates is something I've thought a lot about. Um, in in fourth edition, this was something that I really felt resonating with me, this topic, because when Dark Sun came out, Dark Sun has all of these custom uh, weapon types that are from the setting, the Caracal, the El Hulak, you know, just on and on. And so we wanted to put those in the organized play adventures for the Ashes of Athos program so that it really felt like Dark Sun. But one of the things you saw is the magic items would say, you know, longsword. It would be battle axe. It would be, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, 
that's interesting to see that all of these magic weapons tend to be longsword and greatsword and things like that. And so what we did was just change up the concept so that we weren't awarding people magic weapons per se. We were awarding them something that you would apply to a weapon you had. Um, so it might be like a, a hilt wrapping that you'd put around whatever the hilt of your weapon was. Or it might be something that was like a gem that you'd wrap around it. Uh, or it could be training. Like someone would teach you a special technique. And all of that would allow you to, to just use whatever weapon you felt like using. And that worked really well. Like players really enjoyed that. It also kept it from being the, um, the golf bag effect, right? You, you just choose whatever you were most enjoyed and you'd put that benefit onto it. It also kept power from creeping in because you could only have sort of one thing added to your weapon generally. Um, so it had a lot of advantages yeah. to it that, that I really liked with this idea of a template. And, and it is a concept I prefer over just stating that a weapon must be a certain type. What do you think, Sean? Uh, I, I agree. I agree totally. And I want to uh, address the second part of the question, which is talking about levels of proficiency. Mm -hmm. I think there's two ways you could do this. One way is is the way that Chad describes, which is you become proficient in not all martial weapons, but a choice of weapon or weapons. And then you get the differentiation there. The other uh, level of proficiency is, you know, as you as you increase, you gain more abilities with a weapon as you gain more proficiency with it. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that second uh, type of proficiency in all levels of D&D, all editions, right? Even going back to AD&D, they, they had uh, double specialization. They had, they had proficiency, specialization, and double specialization. So if you were specialized in a weapon, you used a proficiency slot on the same weapon twice. So one slot proficient, two slots proficient. Uh, specialized three slots double specialized so if you were specialized it was plus one to hit plus two to damage and if you were double specialized it was plus three to hit plus three to damage and so it's been in the game before uh yeah. by doing that of course you you aren't able excuse me to gain proficiency in other weapons but do you need to be proficient in other weapons if you have your great sword and your longbow, and that's all you need. You just put all your proficiency slots to specialize and double specialize in those. Uh, and all, all what all of this does, it just adds another level of complexity, which for some people is wonderful. And if it's if it's designed very tightly and very carefully, it can be an interesting and fun choice. But what happens when you add complexity? As soon as people start playing, they're going to figure out mathematically which is the best option, <laughs> and everyone is going to start doing that. Yeah. And the the more complex it is, the more chance there is that 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 uh, differentiation in power level becomes clear, or the larger the gap is between the best and the least optimized things. And that's just the it's just the nature of design that that's going to happen. So. Again, I, I don't hate the idea. We've seen it before. Mm -hmm. I just want that balance between the simplicity of the game for new players or for the people who want simplicity versus this complexity that you'll introduce if you introduce these new systems. 
It's really interesting how much of this we've seen before. Like Mike Olson, who we had on the show talking about fate, uh, was bringing up on our Discord that um, you know weapon mastery, the actual term, appears in the uh, rules compendium as an option and, and is not that dissimilar from what's being talked about here. Uh, the idea of templates, right? You can yeah. talk about third edition and how you'd, you'd choose to put, you know, flaming burst and, you know, any of these other features as a sort of improvement that you'd build into a, a magic item. And, and, and so we, it's interesting to look back, back at those designs. You can never a hundred percent copy it because the game is different and the way people play is different. Mm-hmm. And this is a thing that if I step back with, from this question and think, you know, where are we? I think to myself that the biggest surprise with 1D&D 2024 is that it is addressing these sort of and drawing out these kind of crunchy questions rather than the role-playing questions. And if you'd asked almost anybody, you know, two years ago in this era of streaming and live plays, you know, what are we going to see supported the most? It would probably be that sort of like playing creatively, playing imaginatively, making for a great stream. And none of these things are that, right? Which is so fascinating to me. Like nobody right. needs an extra feat for that streaming game or the proficiency bonus to be doubled or any, you'd need different types of things that other mm-hmm. RPGs do actually quite well and you could borrow from and that we know how to do instead of this. And so I tend to think that's my answer to this is like, these are all fine. And I, as a player can really get into this type of stuff, but I don't think it's where we want, mm-hmm. where D&D should want to go based on what the larger audience is doing. Yeah. Unless it is a business push to have more crunch, to have more complexity because we can sell more content by adding this complexity. And that's not, that's not a knock on the game. That's no, but, just a, a reality that we have to live in. Yeah. But, but I guess the question is, are we, why are we, why is Wizards still worried about selling 10 more books when that doesn't add up to their goals? And, and 10 can be a million more books. It doesn't matter. Like, why focus on right. selling a million right. more books when you should want to have branded beach towels and, and uh, birthday party plates again? Right. And, and we're seeing right. some of that. But, well, but that's, that's the big money, right? Is, you want pop tarts, branded pop tarts. That's and very true. Hot pockets. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. But the design team can't do that. The design team can only do <laughs> what the design team can do. Yeah. And if if it's said, all right, it, this is a full team effort. So we, the marketing and branding team, are going to work our tails off to get hot pockets and salami and bologna uh, branded with D and D. You, the design team, need to make a game that captures everyone's imagination and gets all the people of all types of players to buy this game and get invested in this game so that when they see the Hot Pockets in the grocery store's freezer section, they are going to want to buy that. And so, you know, that sort of let's all get together and build toward this, work toward this one goal yeah it's something that they may feel the need to do especially if there is uh you know a an accountant somewhere up the chain saying if we could sell a hundred thousand more of each book that we sell that translates into ten thousand more 
customers for our beach towel uh, and and uh, hot pockets. Yeah, and I guess the this question show, by is... the way, is not sponsored by hot pockets. <laughs> Yeah. Although we would take hot pocket money if we could get it. But some have accused us of a bunch of baloney, so you know. It's true. That's true. Uh yeah. Yeah, I guess the question is, you know, yeah. is doubling your specialization, giving you another feed, is that increasing the number of players? I don't know. It it might, it might not, but what what's happening is other games are coming out with more complexity that are basically D&D knockoffs. Um, so players that want that complexity are saying, ooh, if I play this game, I get a third type of action that I can do things with. I'm going to go play that because that is better. Um, yeah. And so that's another thing that they have to hedge their bets against as well. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see whether the the, say, like the Valiant RPG Kickstarter, how that does compared to shadow dark for example uh which is so rules light mm -hmm. and and has not only captured the imagination but people are playing it right which is a testament to right. both its design That's and the deal. appeal yeah. of that type of game so you know if mm -hmm. if the crunchier ones don't actually seem to be resonating like the lighter ones that would be pretty interesting um but at the end of the day, D&D doesn't operate like any other role-playing game. It gets to chart its course because it is the biggest player. And, and to me, the things that make it bigger are, are things like Stranger Things. Right? It's, it's, it's almost beyond the game. The game helps, for sure. But it's beyond the game how you get that growth. Mm -hmm. And then you, what you want is people to interact with your game and have it be easy, even if you're almost like the improbable demographic for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Interesting things. Interesting times. Uh, so let's, uh, we'll, we have more questions lined up for next week. So if you have a question uh, at the end of the show, we will tell you all the ways that you can get us your questions, but let's get into our news and commentary section. We are not going to cover any more of the unearthed arcana this, this week. We've got more than enough content to cover so maybe next week we will dig into one of the other classes that are there but you can already give your feedback on that because the new ua survey is up and, and, and I, it uh I survey this, okay. i thought it focused on weapon mastery so i wrote that in our show notes but i i think it actually is the whole survey and you can choose which parts to mm -hmm. answer um right we were joking that with a with an unearthed arcana of that size, it might take you forty eight hours to fill out the survey for it. But apparently, as I haven't taken it, but apparently other people have and said you can choose which section specifically to talk about. And there are also two new videos up uh, talking about the previous survey for the paladin and the druid, and then talking about the recent packet focusing on the warlock uh, weapon mastery and epic feats. What are your thoughts, Teos, on these videos? Oh, there's some really, really fascinating stuff in these videos. Um, the Paladin apparently scored super high, everything above 70%. Um, there were some questions about staying true to the nature of Paladins, like, you know, range smite. Is that really what they should have uh, that they're considering? But otherwise, the Paladin went really well. And then they said, the Druid went like we expected. I'm like, really? You wanted to <laughs> create a contentious packet? I don't know that you did. 
But um, but they did say it was very contentious. Uh, slightly more than half did not like the idea of a single common stat block for Wild Shape, but the others did. And so they think they can tweet, tweak that approach to speak to the naysayers. Uh, and they said for sure their goal is to not ask a player to consider 100 stat blocks and decide which one to turn into, which I appreciate. Um, not everybody does. I know that. <laughs> but um, but that's what they're going to focus on. And what they did say is we'll see another UA again for the Druid with an ent- they said entirely new take. I'm not sure that that's really the wording he meant to say. Um, but, you know, I wonder if it's going to be like customizable stat blocks, as they've hinted at before when the when the yeah. results kind of when the impressions first started to be heard. Um, any thoughts on that? No, I think I don't think that is surprising information at all mm-hmm. based on you know, what we talked about and what I've heard other people talk about in terms of those two things. Well, allow me to surprise you now because video two on the recent packet had some quotes that I I was surprised by. Uh, Jeremy talked about epic feats and he said that they felt players did not remember that they existed. So these level 20 feats now being now having an epic feat assigned to your character becomes a preview to help groups remember that these exist and that you can get more to which I thought. Who cares about what happens at 20th level? Don't isn't your own data telling you that basically nobody's playing at level 20? Like, why do you need to preview a thing at the end of the game? Why was this a concern? Yeah. Wait, (laughs) was he talking about forgetting that epic feats existed or forgetting that feats themselves? Uh, No, that 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 epic feats existed. And so that now you get this preview and you'll maybe want to award more. Like, I don't I don't think people love them, so I don't. I guess I don't. Under, I thought this was all very fascinating. Um, yeah, that's that's weird. Yeah, and then the other part is he says that this is similar to why they wanted to add a feat to backgrounds at level one, and he says that fewer than half of all groups use feats. Okay, so I'm taking that in. Okay, I'm with you. Okay, he says the survey suggests that some are feat curious. So now by imposing feats on everyone, you get to try feats and decide whether to use them or to use the ability scores. I'm Mm -hmm. like, wait, fewer than half use them, so they don't like them. I don't think they're ignoring. I don't think they're missing that chapter in the book. So you're going to make them use it. And you've also made feats so much better in this edition in 2024 than you did in 2014 by usually giving you an extra plus one to an ability score beyond what they already did and tell dms hey you can still give your players just the plus two ability scores i don't think that's going to go well the dm's going to look like a villain if they try to not allow feats now i thought that was really interesting yeah i did not follow the thinking you know other than at a very (laughs) english parsing level yeah that that's a whole it's a whole lot to unpack. I did not watch the video and yeah. I, I was very happy to have feats be op- optional. I was mm-hmm. going to say optimal, which is a Floridian slip um, on my part. Uh, yeah. I was happy to have them be optional and, but even, you know, making something that was in the previous edition or the previous two editions sort of mandatory to then go and make them optional in the next edition, as as you say, Teos, sort of 
makes them not as optional as you might think mm-hmm. because players are going to assume players assume that flanking gives you advantage. People assume that they're just going to be able to use feats and by making them optional, the it's, it makes the DM seem like a bad person. If they say, please let's not use flanking or let's not use uh, feats. Yeah. And DMs are parents, right? It's DMs, just mm-hmm. we're we're as a DM, you are given the tough role of having to say no to things that players want but should not want, right? Like just the way that kids want candy or to stay up super late and they don't understand the repercussions. <laughs> and that's what the DM often has to do for the good of the campaign. But right, right. Hmm. Yeah. And and you know, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a DM wanting to win. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times it is the DM saying, I can see where this is going if we continue down this path. It will be less fun for you in the long run. And it will be less fun for me in the long run. So let's cut this off now. And often players, you, you said it before, right? Players saying, I hate the way this plays, but I have to play it. <laughs> Right, I hate yeah. that I have to take this feat, but I have to. I mean, my and my ranger, no, my twentieth level ranger has sharpshooter. Right, I mean, why? Because it's right. so dumb not to take it. it it's so you know, and, and I feel compelled mm-hmm. to. And there's a part of me that wants to say, like, you know, I took I I chose the feat that gives me three skills, but no, I did not. I took sharpshooter. Right, like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And um, speaking I of sharpshooter, I understand loving. Uh, I understand players loving customization, right? I I understand wanting to be able to choose different options and having choices. But again, that adds complexity. And when you add complexity to the machine, it causes problems with the machine um, and disparities mm-hmm. between the different outputs of that machine. Um, and we just yeah. we have to be wary of that. And I just find it super fascinating that, you know, that acknowledgement of, and he said it wasn't a huge margin, but, you know, more than half of, of groups are not using feats. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's wild. Um, and that this came in into play in the next piece, which is he said that some, there's some interesting discussion regarding great weapon master and sharpshooter going on internally. And I guess they had solid responses back on how they had toned them down. But uh, I guess some people feel strongly about them, right? Because this is their source of joy to to deal massive amounts of damage. And Jeremy reiterated, hey, we want players to keep in mind a majority of players aren't using feats and they have perfect fun without these feats, right? So the game does not need these things to survive. Um, and and so please you know, do understand that for groups using feats, or they understand that for groups using feats, these things can seem connected, right? Like the fun comes from these pieces. And I understand that because one of the reasons my ranger is super competitive at the table is because of sharpshooter and the way my class deals attacks to many targets, sharpshooter then ups that damage. And now I'm a contender at the table. And so if that goes away, I am not a contender at the table and my damage will be very lackluster. That doesn't mean the game's not fun to play. But I acknowledge that, right? So I think they are looking at that, uh, and they're apparently going to look at, at how that, um, how to tweak these maybe a little bit further beyond what we saw in the UA. He also said that weapon mastery and the idea of it slowing down the game is something that they have worked for months internally. And so the result is 
the result of trying to fine tune that, which maybe suggests it was even more complicated before. Um, and the last thing that I thought was interesting, just he talks about the warlock and how the spell slots felt like a constraint to players, which to me is sort of in that kid category where I go like, yes, it's a constraint. I don't know that the solution is more spell slots. Like I have played a warlock and thought, in fact, my problem was not that I had few spell slots, but that I had a lot of spell options. And that felt like an information mismatch. I should not have 20 options mm-hmm. for two slots. Like, just give me mm-hmm. features that I can do twice and I'd be just as happy, right? Like, in fact, happier because that yeah. dichotomy of menu versus slots would go away. Having more slots makes the warlock, I think, more complex and changes its focus. And I don't know that that's where it should be, but we'll see. Yeah. And a lot of this goes back to the old adventuring day resource management type of thing. Would the game be better if there were no spell slots? <laughs> Would the game be better if everyone just was able to do in an encounter the things they could do? Mm-hmm. Uh, how often at above fifth level do you run out of spell slots? I've asked this several times, and I always get four or five people saying, oh, I, I run out of spell slots all the time. Uh, you are the exception and not the rule. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and, uh, and it it's, wasn't it's that rare way that people in other know. editions. But. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it is a complex uh, issue. I'm glad Jeremy got out in front and, and gave us all these things. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, the new pal or the new wild shape for the Druid or any changes to weapon mastery going forward to see what the feedback ends up being and how the game might uh, t- be tweaked in order to accomplish what the designers wanted to accomplish. Yeah. Speaking of producing games, D&D is hiring a producer. What does a producer do? A producer is an ideal candidate who can... Uh, have proven game industry expertise in production workflow, tracking tools and resource management, strong communication and time leadership skills, a passion for product development, design and development workflows, and an affinity for games and lifestyle brands. Boy, do we have that? There are several producers art. Yes, there are producers already on the team, a bunch of highly skilled folks who I have worked with in the past who do a great job in essentially herding all the cats from freelancers to interfacing with the art team, with production staff, and so on, and so on, and so on. And the good news is they gave a salary range which goes from $91,000 to $153,000. And of course, that's Seattle money. So that's a buck 20 when you compare to to the rural areas of New York. uh, Yeah, that'll that'll buy a cardboard box on the side of the street, but it's a beautiful cardboard box. True story. No, that I mean it's great that they're giving that now that information. No, that is that is a good salary. Uh, We have a link in our show notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very nice. So if you have this experience and a passion for D&D, um, there's a link in our show notes, or you can just go to uh, boards.greenhouse.io and search for Wizards of the Coast. 
there was some sad news in the gaming world when uh, we learned that artist Russell Nicholson has passed. You may know his work from the Fiend Folio of the AD&D days, uh, particularly the black and white style that we see a lot of detail with shadow interplay, um, including some of his most iconic art of the Gith Yankee and the Grell, which mm. are super memorable for those of us who grew up playing D&D in that era. God, that Grell with just that beat coming down on the adventure, trying to fight mm. it. Oh, it's beautiful. And I love just looking. It's one. Yeah. He, he created these works that you could just get lost in just watching these. And he, he was really well known in the British scene and, and very influential. Um, did a lot of work outside of D&D as well. And, and any of his works you look at and you can just get lost in the way he would do a column or the shadows in the ceiling of a temple or something. Like, just great stuff. Yeah, a lot of the like old school Renaissance products that we see try to copy that black and white style um, mm -hmm. that became so iconic. We heard from DM David with another blog post called The Neglected Secret to Making Dungeons Fun to Explore. Um, you you want to give us sure. a little rundown on what this is? It's another fantastic DM David blog, um, and it's focused on how an interesting story isn't enough to make a dungeon fun and flavor is good, but that alone doesn't capture and engage players. So you need these sort of interactive features. That's the neglected secret. Mm -hmm. And these even small, simple interactions can be very effective and don't require a lot of work from the DM. So he gives examples of those. Link in our show notes or go to dmdavid.com. Excellent article on this subject. I suspect he'll follow it up with more. For sure. Uh, Jeff Stevens Games has a new product out called The Puzzling Temple of Flummox Heist. Um, Jeff Stevens and Allison... Colentine uh, have created this adventure that include nine escape room style puzzles. Um, you can challenge your players and their characters with a brain teasing mix of puzzles, combat and role play in this one shot adventure for characters of third through sixth level, which will delight fans of escape rooms and solve at home mystery adventures. There's an, a hints appendix and solution appendix to make things easier if you tend to get frustrated like I do. Uh, and then, of course, you can just play this as a one-shot adventure or use the puzzles in your own adventure. And there are also a couple of fun combat encounters there. Uh, you got a chance to look at it, Teos. What, do you, oh, what did yeah. you think? Uh, there's some great art. The cover is amazing. Uh, the map of the complex is really cool. And I like the puzzles. They were really clever, and, and they come in early. It's 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 creatively done how it's woven throughout the adventure. It's not just like room A, room B. It's it's even approaching the place, uh, and and I think the first sort of handout you get is is a puzzle. Um, they're really neat, uh, and and I would absolutely use the puzzles that I see here in other situations. So this is almost doubling as an adventure you can run for a, a group that likes this, or to break away from the mold of just combat, or Things you can just rip out of there and put in anywhere. They're very applicable for other situations. And designers, creators take note. Uh, Jeff highly recommends Allison for puzzle design projects. So worth considering. It's already yeah. a silver bestseller. It is already a silver bestseller. Mm -hmm. Already a silver bestseller. And it's uh, $4.95 on the Guild. 
A couple of crowdfunding notes here. We have Pesto's Guide to Playtesting that's out. We talked about this previously. Uh, Spencer Hibnick put out a guide to playtesting RPG products. And so now you can get it. It's available on itch uh, at pestopublications.itch.io. There's a link in the show notes. You can follow uh, Pesto Enthusiasts on Twitter. And, you know, it's a suggested $5 purchase, but you can do a name your own price. So pay what you want. Um, I would suggest checking it out. And I'm going to let Teos tell you about the next one. Yeah. Uh, Eldritch RPG second edition. Supporter of the show Dan Cross shares his Kickstarter for the second edition of the Eldritch RPG. This is an immersive narrative RPG with swift combat and a distinctive semantic design, as he calls it where the way you describe actions influences the gameplay. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, he has, mm -hmm. uh, this is the second edition of this game. So he debuts a new engine for the rules uh, with iconic items, magic foci, spirit points, and mastery dice for enhanced customization and powerful tools so you can excel in combat and other demanding scenarios. So your, your support helps bring the game uh, and its fantasy setting to life. And if you want to check it out, it's very easy to do. You can go to the Kickstarter page for the Eldritch RPG 2nd Edition and download the Free Player's Handbook. Uh, he also has a web flipbook, so you can just kind of flip through it. You don't have to download anything and just see different pages. And a really cool video that uh, promotes it as well. So check it out. I know you'd appreciate the help. And that is our look at the news. We will now get on to our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons. We are going to delve into Chapter 3 of the 5th edition 2014 Dungeon Master's Guide. Chapter 3 covers creating adventures. And who doesn't love a good adventure? Mm. I love it. Do you love a good adventure, Teos? Mm -hmm. True. Awesome. So last time we looked at chapter two, creating a multiverse, which was all about the planes and heavy on lore. And now we get into the good stuff. Now we get into teaching DMs how to create their own adventures. We may end up breaking this up into two weeks of mm -hmm. coverage, depending on how vociferous that we get <laughs> on what on the content that's here. But let's talk about the opening because I love looking at openings to see what we're going to learn and what the what the designers and the writers have to say. And this chapter begins with the following: Creating adventures is one of the most uh, one of the greatest rewards of being a dungeon master. It's a way to express yourself, designing fantastic locations and encounters with monsters, traps, puzzles, and conflicts. When you design an adventure, you call the shots. You do the things exactly the way you want to. Hmm. And my reaction is, I was with you right up to that last couple <laughs> yeah. of things. Uh -huh. uh, and I, I, yeah, I try to tell people not to use the word things in their writing or use unclear pronouns. You do things exactly the way you want to. Uh, that sort of hints at the dungeon master being all powerful. Uh, yeah. You do things exactly the way. No, no, you don't. You can create an adventure that will hopefully play out in a story <laughs> that 
you envision being played at the table, but you don't do things exactly the way you want to because we have this concept in role-playing game called players. Mm. And these players, believe it or not, can sometimes throw some sand in the gears of what you expect to happen at the table. This is shocking news, Sean. I am what? I know. Things won't go as planned. But yeah, I, I had the same impression when I read this. I was like, exactly the way you want to. And and there are two parts, but one is that, I mean, it's almost like you're setting up the new DM to fail because no, things will not go exactly the way you want to. Uh, and that may crush you if you're not prepared for that. And two, this is not about your ego. Like, yes, it is cool that you can express yourself right. and design these amazing places. Yeah. That's great. That's art. That's creation. And that is unbelievable that you are the one creating the world, even from an ego perspective. Awesome. But it's just neat from the art perspective. But it's not because you get to dictate how it plays out. And, and right. in fact, that's the real beauty of it is that next piece, which mm-hmm. is when you create these things, the joy of seeing how they actually react to it and learning from that is what makes this a lifelong gift and challenge that is the best part yes. of it to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't say that any better myself, right? That's what I was thinking here is when you write a book, and someone reads it, you're not there with them. Mm-hmm. So you don't know how they're reacting to it. When you create a piece of art it, hanging on the wall or sitting on the, on the block, on the pedestal, you could be at the gallery watching people, but generally you're not. When you're a dungeon master and you've created an adventure and you're presenting it to players, the joy of seeing their reactions to it and you being surprised by it. Yeah. Is is that beauty, like you say, Teos? And I wish they had said that here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe they did somewhere else. But if they did, it was sort of lost mm-hmm. in in things, right? That that's that's the joy of this. And I'm I'm cool with everything they say in this chapter. Uh, you know, it mm-hmm. it all is stuff that is needs to be said and is good. But that's that element of it. The players interacting with an element gets undervalued and undermentioned. Um, and I think it needs to needs to be highlighted more. Yeah. And I think we'll see that that's a sort of a through line in this chapter, if not really in the whole book up till now, is that the, the book is, it's like an encyclopedia <laughs> for those that are our age. Mm-hmm. It is, it is, it's telling you, things in a sort of almost reference format but not in a how-to not in a conspiratorial communal way and and i think the best books that i read and the best editions of dungeons masters guys and so on are the ones where it acknowledges this is an imperfect process and and it's sort of saying we're in this together buddy Mm -hmm. because this is not just about one game it's the long game and you are slowly try this refine this way um correct when you see these kinds of things like it's that kind of approach to things that you want to roll up your sleeves and get into it rather than this assumption of like everything will be fine if you just do it this way right yeah 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 so we get the first section after the introduction elements of a great adventure and we are told that the best adventures have these things in common a credible threat Familiar tropes with clever twists, clear focus on the present, heroes who matter, 
something for all player types, surprises, and useful maps. So we get those seven elements of the best adventures. And I think that's true. I think mm-hmm. those topics, those things, uh, those elements of an adventure are something that are in, that are interesting and vital to focus on as you consider and then design your adventures. Yeah, yeah. Then we get a paragraph on those on each of those, sort of going into a little bit more detail. Uh, what what did you what was your thoughts on that, Deus? Yeah, these are these are all really good and, and a nice way to to start off the chapter of of, of thinking through uh, and maybe challenging some of your assumptions, which I think is important when you talk about adventure writing to 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 paint the idea that there the this is a complex topic with complex approaches to it and things like the familiar tropes of the clever twists or a focus on the present is great. I mean, that's something, you know, don't get lost in backstory and what happened, like do the now. That's a great point. Um, making it about the players, speaking to all the different types of players and different things they like, you know, these are all excellent things. So I, I like this a lot. I thought this was a very strong start to things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Getting these basics down is important because like in any creative process, you should know the structure before you try to break the structure and do something mm-hmm. completely innovative, right? Charlie Parker, the jazz uh, musician, said, master your instrument, master the music, then forget all that BS and just play. <laughs> and so that's why we need this this grounding. We need to know that, yeah, here we need this. We need the heroes to matter and, and make choices. Mm-hmm. They talk about the useful maps, and really what they mean more than just the map is give the player information, but also choices within that information. I wish the map does that if it's done well. Yeah. I wish they'd made that point a little more strongly. And, and I think this is also a theme in this section. They sometimes assume a certain type of story, a certain type of adventure here that mm-hmm. is almost very old school in its assumption. And, and, and I wish they'd, Mm-hmm. stepped away from that a bit right yeah there, there were a couple times when you know something like familiar tropes with a clever twist it's okay to just have the familiar tropes mm-hmm. in fact you want to have the familiar tropes because if everything you do is a twist then then it doesn't surprise mm-hmm. it's just oh mm-hmm. here's the one more twist and and surprises is one of their categories and it's the same thing Right. You don't always want to surprise the characters with every. It's like watching the show where you know that the person who they just interacted with is the real villain because that's the person they interacted with first. And the person they interact first is always the villain. Uh, right. So you, you don't need a surprise all the time. You just want the surprise to be at the right time to have the right resonance within the story. Yeah. And then we get a section on published adventures, a few paragraphs on how you can save time. If you don't want to create an adventure, then you can customize these to fit your particular group. If you do get a a fully published adventure. I mean, for a company that provides published adventures for sale, I'm surprised at how short this is. It's just like four short paragraphs. This could be two pages in terms of really useful tips to a new DM on 
how to run a published adventure well, how to approach them, how to prepare mm-hmm. for them, which is a constant question you see people asking, how to make the most of them, yeah. how to assess your players as you run and turn it into a story about them, which of course the writer could not do, right? Because they don't know your, your mm-hmm. specific players. Yeah. There's, there's a lot here that could be really toolkit approach around published adventures. So I'm surprised it didn't happen, right? And you could even use the starter set as an example. So I guess then you get into the right. which starter set. But, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I wanted more here because a good percentage of, of uh, DMs are using published adventures. And so to just, you know, the rest is all about making your own. And like, well, I think you just missed a lot of your audience than just giving them only four paragraphs. Yeah, and the first uh, starter set, The Lost Minds of Fandelver, would have been out when this book was published. Right. So at least they should have known that that was uh, something they could have referred to and told yeah. you, here is how you run it, or some suggestions, and then going from there, how you mm-hmm. would mine it, no uh, pun intended, for for some um, use in your own worlds. Awesome. Uh, Next, we have adventure structure. And this talks about what does every story have? A beginning, a middle, and an end. And telling you how those three parts of a story can be shown through a role-playing game adventure. Somehow this part did not really super work for me. Like, yeah, stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And they talk about things like, you know, a strong climax should have the players on edge, with the fate of the characters and more hanging in the balance. And that, that's all fine, but I, I don't know what a DM really does with this information. Um, this is another case where it feels encyclopedic. And and I guess I'd I'd wanna mm-hmm. I'd wanna know a little more of how should I be approaching creating a story. Like I'd want this to be more process-based. And and this they they do have more process pieces after this. But, you know, to me, this should be when you sit down to craft an adventure, first start at a high level with what the overall concept is and think through your beginning, beginning, middle and end with some ideas, some rough ideas you have. Right. And what you might like about it and something like that. Um, Like when we did our episode about the gumshoe RPG with Kevin Culp, it recommends that you start with the villain and their plans then work backwards creating a trail of clues from what's going to be your investigation trigger that kicks off the adventure to the heart of the plot and the antagonists. And I kind of would have liked this to be the D&D equivalent um, at a high level to get me started in the process of writing adventure, and then you go and give me a more formal next step process after that. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. We, If you're trying to teach someone how to create a good rpg adventure especially for D, because that's its own thing it has its own beats and so on you have to rely on the fact that everybody up you know after the age of three can pretty much articulate what a story is we know what a story mm-hmm. is i spoke to a kindergarten class about story writing the teacher asked me to come in and I thought, okay, I'll come in and read a story. She's like, no, I want you to teach them how to write a story. And I was thinking they're kindergartners. Can they even write yet? And they can't, but they can dictate. Mm. And so she wanted me to tell them how to create a story. 
and I had no idea how to do this. <laughs> and so what, because, you know, I could teach a college level class on yeah. it, but, uh, uh, so what I went in and did was I went in and I said, I'm going to tell you a story once upon a time, the end. <laughs> and, and I've never seen a more irate group of <laughs> six-year-olds in my life. They were raging because that obviously was not a story. Mm -hmm. And they told me so quite loudly, mm -hmm. uh, quite vehemently. And so I said, it's not what, 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 what's it missing? And they're like, what? And they started listing all the things that were missing from this once upon a time, the end mm -hmm. story, like people, <laughs> like the bad guy. Right. And they're using their own words, but they're saying yeah. all of the things. Where does it happen? Oh, the setting. Uh, what happens? Oh, the plot. Right. And so then they went off and they dictated their own stories to the me and the teacher and the helpers that were there. Um, and you can literally do this with role playing games. Right. We all took maybe even in grade school. Let's talk about this short story. What are some elements of it? Characters, mm -hmm. setting, plot. Uh, conflict, theme, atmosphere, tone, all of that. Mm -hmm. RPG uh, adventures have all of these things. And you can use that knowledge that we all have intrinsically from being uh, consumers of stories to put those elements into place during an adventure. And how does it change mm -hmm. because it's an RPG adventure and not a work of fiction? So I, I sort of wish they they had gone that route as well. Yeah, and and bless you for that. I love the Socratic method. And and when I was, you know, thinking about what you're just saying, looking at this guy, like the, um, I would love here some top level information. Like like one of the things this doesn't address at all. The entire chapter is what is a good story, or how do you even know you have a good story? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that is important. And and like a good st one of the things that I say to folks when we're talking about adventure writing is, you know, you have a good story when you can, in very simple terms, describe it. And that sounds cool, even just to you. Right. If you mm -hmm. just very quickly describe what's happening, that sounds great. And most of the adventures that, you know, if you take one of the five e adventures and if you just in three sentences or less say what that story is like, that it sounds cool. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is a neat concept to do for your own self and you can keep asking yourself the question of what is my story as you go through the process and does it still still sound good to me does it sound cool would i sound cool would i like to see the movie of this would i like to read the novel of this thing that i'm mm -hmm. doing not because i'm writing a novel and i'm not writing a movie but that it would be a neat enough three mm -hmm. sentence two sentence explanation right the elevator pitch of it would resonate and i'd want to see someone make that in a movie and if not, well, then adjust the parts that it right. feels that way. You could do the parts, right? Like the way you said, like a setting, conflicts, plot, tone, theme, that could be part of it. Like if it doesn't resonate, are you using these things? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What were you saying? And if you do envision it as a story, if you do envision it as a movie, what would the characters have to do in mm -hmm. order to make that thing cool? Mm -hmm. uh, so don't just say, here's, here's a situation I'm throwing the characters into it's, this is the situation I'm throwing the characters into, and I can envision these cinematic or these cool ways that they are going to deal with this. Uh, now, sometimes they can come up with those things on their own, 
but sometimes they need to see that path. They need to see even a word that will trigger their imagination in a certain way to realize that this is the cool thing that they can do. Otherwise they might, the only input they have is through their character sheets. So they're looking down at the words on their character sheet rather than thinking through the story that you are, that you are laying in front of them and the options within that story. Uh, Next they go into, or the book goes into adventure types, dividing them up into Location-based adventures, event-based adventures, mysteries, intrigue, and framing events. So let's talk about each of them individually. Uh, Location-based adventures. Teos, take it away. All right. So they have a six-step process here, and this does get into the process uh, kind of piece that I was looking for. Uh, Identify the party's goals. And one of the interesting things here is they use a lot of tables. And sometimes I think the tables are great. Sometimes they're not so great. So we get a table of goals for dungeon or wilderness or other three tables with goals as to why you entered the location. So I'll pick one at random. Escape from captivity and captivity in the dungeon. Um, interesting, but we know that's a thing that can very, very hard to pull off. So already I'm a little concerned that there's just a entry and not information on this. But, uh, you know. Uh, another one is find an NPC who disappeared in the area. Okay, you know, that's fine. Um, and then step two, so that's our goal. Then we're going to identify important NPCs. More tables. We get tables of adventure villains, allies, and patrons. And we're told that chapter four, the next chapter, will help us bring NPCs to life. So we have things like the adventure villain is a humanoid cultist. The adventure allies are a priest. And... Uh, we have an adventure patron who is a deity or a celestial. What do you think of this so far, Sean? I think that this does not follow the same process that I follow. <laughs> I uh, thought the when same I'm thing. Creating yeah. an adventure. Uh-huh. Uh I I I now do I do some of this? Yes. Do I do it in this exact order? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of like world building. When we talked about world building, you could talk, do from the top down or the bottom up. In it, with adventure design, there's also a similar concept. Whether you know you start with the the main goal, or do you start with the basics of how you're going to launch toward that main goal? And you need to know both simultaneously, and you need to go back and forth between the two yeah. in order to really make the best adventure that you can. Now, sometimes that back and forth can be after you're done, you do another iteration of it. But it helps if you're able to jump back and forth between the the whole adventure and each encounter within that adventure to build it in a way that is most efficient and most likely to capture the imagination of DMs and players. And it does say in the brief intro paragraph to this piece that we can alter the order of these. Um, and I'll just say very quickly, three is flesh out the location details. Four, find the ideal ideal introduction. Um, five, consider the ideal climax. And then six is plan, flesh out the encounters. And I agree with you that this is not at all like what I do. And and I, I don't know that this is, again, great how-to advice. You can certainly get an adventure out of following this process. And it would, it would give you a lot of ideas that could be helpful towards making a fun adventure. But... Um, but yeah, I, I didn't love this. 
Yeah. And I mean, how would I do it? <laughs> I would identify the goal of the entire. It's good that they focus on the party. Mm-hmm. I, I like that because sometimes a a game master or a adventure designer will forget about that the party even exists and have a grand story that could take place without the party being there. So I like identify the party goals in the overall adventure. What are you trying to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, the table that you read could could spur some good ideas, but they would need to be much, much more fleshed out than simply what what you're saying there. Uh, and then and, what I and, do is is I go and I, oh, yeah, go ahead. Nothing tells you how to do the fleshing out of this and what else to consider. Is it, so right. it's like if I say, okay, I'm rescuing a captive, cool. Why, how, how do I make that interesting? What are, yeah. Yeah, so I go step one, identify the party's goals, then step five. What what does the final step in achieving that goal look like? What's the grand final battle scene, whatever you want to call it? What does that look like? Uh, Then I will try to consider who is involved. Mm -hmm. But I'm also jumping back to the encounter level by to say, what steps along the way do the characters need to take to achieve that final goal? Because each encounter should also have a goal. So what's the thread? What's the beats that lead up to that final encounter that's going to allow them to achieve that final goal? What sort of sub goals and twists and turns can we add along the way? Do I want it to be very simple? Just, you know, find the person who will lead you to the information, who will lead you to the magical scroll, who will lead you to the final cave mm-hmm. layer combat. Pretty simple and straightforward. Do I throw twists in there? Uh, you know, Then you can start playing around with, with the structure. And, you know, like you mentioned beats, and it's interesting, there's nothing addressing that kind of thought. You know, even though Robin Laws has in the past consulted on previous DMGs, and and written sections of them and 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 Kenneth Hyde and other really smart people like that and and it it feels like this is this is something that should have been read by maybe more eyes to get more ideas on it because it is really it's, it's the more i think about this and read this the more i realize how much is missing from this around the process that i actually follow or people that i look up to follow and 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 talk about um yeah it it is it's really interesting to me to go like, wow, this is what the the, the only things they're telling you about building an, building an adventure. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's not wrong. It's just, it's so complex that to say, here are the six steps or seven steps, six steps leaves, leaves so much out mm-hmm. that I would and have presented it in a different way. Yeah. Um, I would start at the ground and, and work your way up by saying, have an idea for your full adventure, but tackle it at the encounter level. Um, let's talk mm-hmm. about how we build encounters. What are the building blocks of those? Then we work our way up toward this idea of putting encounters together to make something larger. But yeah. again, and then that would be wrong in the long run because other people do it differently. So, but I, but I think I that, don't think there's a, a right answer. 
the fact that it, it isn't right is almost like what you do need to speak to, right? To, to that idea of this is an iterative process that can start in a number of ways, but you want to consider some of these different factors, like, like the, the larger story, the agency the players have, the villain's motives. And, and the dance of this is, is figuring out how you like to approach this to put those pieces together, right? And, and it's not, um, yeah, it, it's that kind of d- discussion that I think is really missing. It's that how-to piece that says, outline, iterate, um, go back and adjust this. Uh, and what even happens during play, right? You might start and, and you actually run this thing after you write it and, and you do your first session where you do the introduction and boy, are the players expecting it to go in a different location. And then you have to think about, do I want to adjust it further? Because this is my baby. I get to, right? I can change some aspects between now and <laughs> next week or whenever we meet again. Um, and, and you mentioned, you know, that you've written about this. And, and in our show notes is a link to, to your awesome Let's Design an Adventure series that looks at how to design an adventure and, and think like a designer and build on pillars and other aspects like that. Um, so we link to that because it's a really good series of articles on D and D beyond. Yeah. I was lucky enough to be able to get asked to write that and it helped me clarify my own process, Mm -hmm. uh, which was important because I had no idea how I designed adventures until I sat down and thought about how I designed adventures. And then, uh, yeah, so that, that was fun. I use this. And and the, the weird thing, the weird thing. The weird thing about this is, right, this is all under location-based adventures. <laughs> and so it sort of it's it sort of says that that there's discrete ways to create different adventures when there really aren't, because you can obviously there there are av- adventures that hinge on events happening and you move from event to event. But when you move mm-hmm. from event to event, you're still moving from location to location. So <laughs> it sort of has this false dichotomy of there are two types of adventures or, you know, specific adventures that are completely different from each other when there really aren't. It's more about the flow of information than Mm -hmm. it is about the way uh, that, that uh, the characters move through it. Yeah. And and that's where you get into things like how granular you are, because if you're traveling from point A to B on a wilderness map, um, that is a certain type of storytelling and pacing that's taking place with different considerations than if you're going through a dungeon crawl. And having events can actually resemble one of those or neither of those. It can really depend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, why don't we break here, then we'll come back and cover the rest of these adventure types Mm -hmm. and uh, talk about random encounters and all sorts of fun things that Chapter 3 continues uh, to give us information about. So, hey, Teos, thank you for sharing your wisdom with all of us. Same. (laughs) I always love it. It's my favorite part of uh, my Mondays. Yeah, me too. Uh, so thank you for our patrons out there. Um, you, we've got a, we had a slew of new patrons come in recently. So thank you so much. If you are getting any joy or knowledge or anything out of Teos and I talking with each other about this game and this hobby we love, please do uh, 
consider supporting us via Patreon. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash mastering DND. Did I get that right? We'll say yeah. I did. Yeah. Uh, and we already have a bevy of supporters out there. Thank you to our Master of Dungeons supporters for your contributions to our cause. A special shout out goes into our show notes for our Master of Realms uh, supporters and our Masters of the Multiverse. Our top tier gets a special shout out in our show notes. And we have Keith Aman of the Monsters Know What They're Doing, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Chad Lynch. Thank you, Chad, for the questions as well. Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg. Krishnan, Krishnan, I can't even pronounce the first name right now. <laughs> Timosha Krishnana. There you go. Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank <laughs> you for all your support, and thank you to our listeners. Teos, where can people find you on this wild World Wide Web? Wow. Well, find me at alphastream.org. That's the safest place to, to find me. Uh, I'm also on Mastodon at Dice.Camp at AlphaStream. Uh, every now and then on Twitter. Where do we find you, Sean? You can find me in a van down by the river. That's what you deserve. Or choices you on made. Twitter at Sean Merwin. Exactly. <laughs> on Twitter at Sean Merwin. The podcast is on Twitter at Mastering D&D. You can also go to Mastodon for the podcast at Dice Camp. Uh, I'm uh, on Mastodon at Tabletop Social. And you can join our community via Patreon. Or go to the YouTube channel, Mastering Dungeons, and talk to us and see our beautiful visages as we discuss games. So, Teos, we got through Chapter 3 halfway. Mm -hmm. We're halfway through our mm -hmm. adventure here. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do now? Well, I'm going to roll on the uh, podcast show Climax Table, or Adventure Climax Table. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay. And it's going to tell me that I have to okay. discover the main villain. That's probably you. Uh, their secret weakness before Not I can sure. hope to defeat the villain. So I've got to figure out what your weakness is. Mm. It's whiskey. I'll tell you right oh, now. Oh, well, well, there you go. Consider yourself defeated. Oh, did I? <laughs> See, now, th that this encounter is going to lead toward the climax of the adventure where you ply me with whiskey. 